Please remain standing for our scripture reading. I'm going to be reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, a heavily Jewish-influenced book, the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, I'll be reading verses 26. I know it says 28 in the bull, excuse me, 18 in the bulletin, but I will be reading from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. God's holy word. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. As I mentioned earlier, um, I was asked to preach at Grace Heritage Baptist Church early in the week last week. Uh, my friend Patrick King had been ill. And as the week progressed, his illness became more severe, and we started, I started to recognize the fact that he wasn't going to make it till Sunday. And uh, I originally was going to be preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I thought it would be a, a good idea to preach a more of a theme topic that was special to my friend Patrick. He was a theological man, but he was very missions-minded. He understood the Great Commission, but he also understood Reformed theology. His soteriology was very precise, and he was an excellent Reformed Baptist. So someone suggested this text to me, and it seemed to be fitting for the services this morning. Um, we all have preconceived ideas on what the Great Commission is, especially in, with our Baptist friends. When I first moved to South Louisiana, this is 27 years ago or so, I made friends with a, a Baptist minister of all places in a dancing class. My wife signed us up for square dancing lessons, and I made friends with, uh, his name was Gary Schneider, a Southern Baptist minister of a place called Plainview, Louisiana. Probably no one's ever heard of it. Small rural community. Anyway, my friend Gary, he invited me to go with him to a tent revival. And if you know my history, I was raised in the North. I was raised by a, a Stoic family. Um, we were conservative Lutherans. And it was a very Stoic, very rigid format in service. And there wasn't a lot of emotion. At that time, I had been a Presbyterian maybe for five years. And I think Gary, my friend, was having a little fun with me. He said, come on, Bird, let's go to this tent revival. Anyway, we head over to Bogalusa. And... Uh, I'm sure some of y'all are very familiar with Bogalusa. And there, I was disappointed when I got there. There was no tent. We actually met in an auditorium, so I was a little bit disappointed in that. And uh, as the service takes place, as you all probably have been to one of these before, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of people getting on stage, a lot of testimonies. And most of the testimonies, it seemed to be a contest to see who could give the most sordid testimony. Who had the greatest sins? Who made the biggest decision for Christ? And it was this big event. A lot of loud music, a lot of crazy stories, and it went on and on. 
towards the end of the service, uh, the evangelist gets on stage and he says, every head bowed, every eye shut. He starts speaking in real low and somber tones. You know, it's very quiet. And I've always prayed with my eyes open. I still do to this day. So I was like, oh, well, okay, okay, Bert, this is their place. We need to follow the rules. So I bowed my head, tucked my head down, and he begins to give this speech. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, raise your hand. I'm like, well, no, I'm already a Christian. That's probably not for me. I don't need to raise my hand. And he continues, if you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ, it goes on and on and on. And I feel like maybe I'm the only one in the whole room that hasn't raised his hand. So the pressure comes, and I said, well, maybe I better raise my hand. So, and now here I'm, oh, there's another soul. And I'm like, oh, no, what did I just do? And then ending, he says, okay, every eye open, every head raised. Now, if you raise your hand, you need to come forward to the front. I'm like, oh, no, I'm already a Christian. I don't need to go up there and sign up to get baptized. These are some of the stereotypes of what we see in evangelicalism in the South. We see the emotional plea. It started in the revivalism under Charles Finney, a Presbyterian, the not theologian, uh, but a pastor in the Presbyterian church. A lot of emotion, a lot of shallowness of theology, and this drive to just get numbers, to get people to commit, to sign a card, to walk an aisle. And I think that's what we see, or that's what we think in our minds when we hear, a lot of us, when we hear the words, the Great Commission. The Southern Baptists a few years ago, they were kind of trying to push the word Southern out of their name. There was a rumor they were going to change it to Great Commission Baptists. And it conjures up all sorts of views of uh, spirituality. And it, it gives this idea that theology is secondary. Emotionalism is more important. Numbers more important. But that's not what our text is going to teach us tonight. What I'd encourage us to do is to try to, let's try to look at the text from, from Christ's words and see what it says to our hearts and to our minds. Help us to dwell on it. Let's walk away with a, a better view of what Christ was trying to teach his 11 apostles that day on the mountain. Right there in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven. Now we love that. Christians love the idea, yes, Christ has authority. He is in heaven, he's on his throne, but that's kind of a futuristic authority. It's not necessarily for us today. His authority is in the church per se, but it's not in, in the totality of our lives. We like to separate, categorize our lives. You know, this is my religious part, this is my family life, this is my workplace. Work is different. It, but no, that's not what the text is telling us. And if you flip back to Daniel chapter 7, we see um, the prophet Daniel talking about this very episode. Christ here on the mountain is saying, this is me. I'm the son of man being prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, if you push pause just for a second there, son of man, that's a messianic title. I think it's used, I think it's 69 times in the New Testament, son of man. That is the term that Christ used to describe himself more often than any other title, son of man. So know 
in prophecy, when you see Son of Man, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. And there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, this kingdom is here, it's now, it's in the future, it's in heaven, he is on his throne, he's not waiting for his crown, but his rule is here also. It was in the Old Testament, and it continues to, 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 to today. It's not this idea that someday God will rule. No, he rules here and now. He is the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. Now, if you think about it, king of kings, in our terminology, we think of political leaders. Uh, the president, he is lord over the president. He's lord over Donald Trump. He's lord over Joe Biden. You name the president, he is king of kings. And how does scripture describe the magistrate? He calls him a servant, a deacon, per se. Uh, not the magistrate isn't a deacon as in the church office. That's a different subject. But he is a servant. He is appointed by God to be the magistrate. He is God's servant, and he is here, and he must submit to Jesus Christ. We like the idea of when I die, I'll go to heaven. Everybody likes that. You know, we want to put, yes, he is Lord in heaven, but is he Lord on earth? He is Lord of heaven and earth. Did you pray the magic prayer? That's often the cry that goes out in the Western world evangelicalism. Did you give yourself to Christ? We don't like the gospel of the Old Testament. You know, we read through Deuteronomy, and there's some tough language in that book. When I read it sometimes, I'm like, oh, i got to read that in front of the congregation. There's ladies present. Some of the language is tough. It's coarse. It's crass. But this is the word of the Lord. And I think sometimes, as modern evangelicals, we get a little embarrassed about it. I do, and I'm like, ooh, I've got, okay, well, that's the word of the Lord. I must read it. We must submit. I don't know if I, everyone here remembers Charles Stanley, a great Southern Baptist minister, had a great ministry in the city of Atlanta. His son has also a great ministry in Atlanta. It's great in the fact that it has large numbers, it's got several campuses around the city. Very successful businessman, very successful business model. He has lots of members. His place is full. And he is in the news in the religious circle right now. He is having something called a sold-out conference. I read about it in the Baptist News Global. It's a kind of a left-wing religious uh, organization that writes articles about Christianity and they came out and they chastised Al Mohler, Southern Baptist Calvinistic uh, theologian, who chastised Mr. Stanley for this conference. You see this conference, it's got a couple speakers that are um, pastors, and they're married. And, you know, like, oh, yes and amen. Marriage is a great thing. I say, it's something God designed for man. But these men are married to other men. And the theme of this conference is, it, the idea is for it's an outreach in Atlanta to parents that have children that are in the LGBTQ, you know, phenomena 
I think I got the right, LGTPQ, is that right? Anyway, these people, we all know what all that stands for, most of the letters anyway, some of them I'm probably not, I might have to ask my kids, what's the dot sign for, what's the plus, you know, at the end, they keep adding another letter, and it gets very confusing. Anyway, Stanley wants to, and I quote, bring the parents to a quieter middle space with the children that are dabbling in this sexual deviancy. He doesn't think that the Al Mohler crowd is correct. The religious right wing, the people that say this kind of behavior is immoral, it's sinful. And of course, he doesn't want them way over here, maybe going to New Orleans to the Southern Decadence Conference. He wants them in a safer, quieter middle space. But no, there is no middle space. There is no neutrality in the eyes of God It's either you serve the Lord or you serve the devil. And what Stanley is selling is nothing but a bold-faced lie. The good news is the news of his kingdom. It's all 66 books of scripture. It's all-encompassing. It rules every, every part of our lives. The good news is the news of the kingdom. Look at verse 18 again. It is of heaven and of earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all-encompassing. But the church today seems to be a little bit ashamed of that. We want to cling to our separation of church and state. Well, we don't want prayer in the public schools anymore because, you know, what if uh, we get a Presbyterian praying to our Baptist kids? You know, that might not be... But no, God says we are to take his kingdom into the world. This is his kingdom. We must not be neutral. There is no neutrality. The moral law is our foundation because Christ owns it all. We have all authority. We also have all encompassing. If you look at verse 19, all authority, excuse me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to take the gospel to all nations, to all people, all creeds, all colors, all nationalities. It's all encompassing. Since the fall, there's basically been two lines. There has been the the line of the seed of Satan and the line of the seed of the woman. And you've got two, two philosophies warring against each other today. In the West, we call it secularism. That seems to be the philosophy, this neutral ground where, you know, religion is out. But no, that secularism is a religion. It has its tenets of faith. And often these two worlds collide. It's like oil and water. They really do not mix. And we often find ourselves in these situations. And my wife always, you know, if we're going to something that might be, you know, a little bit problematic, my wife will say, just don't say anything. That's her, her words of advice. And we went to a LSU Mississippi State football game last year, and of course, I ended up saying something. There was some foul-mouthed young man. I mean, and I'm not talking just cuss words. I'm talking cuss words on top of cuss words that were vile in front of women, older people, younger people. It was problematic. This year, my kids said, now, Dad, we were going again to see my son's LSU um, he goes to Mississippi State. And this year my son said, Now, Dad, you're getting older. You can't fight anymore. And I think they had genuine concern 
that I was going to say something to some rowdy gentleman from Baton Rouge that would give me a knuckle sandwich. But know that these two worlds often collide, and at times we aren't required to speak. No, we don't want to get in a fight. I know I'm too old to fight. I would probably swing and fall over and hurt myself. But this fight is so evident in our campuses. It is, uh, it's heartbreaking. We sat in front of a, they looked like they were sisters. They were middle-aged women. They had a 10-year-old daughter and beautiful little girl, pre-adolescence. And I could, you know, it's hot out, but I could tell she kept trying to take her shirt off, trying to take her shirt off. And, and her mom's like, well, what are you doing? She goes, ma'am, I'm hot, I'm hot. She had a sports bra on underneath. And I know what the girl, she wanted to look like some of the older kids. Some of the things they wear were promiscuous, to say the least, but this young, poor young girl wanted to fit in. And eventually, her t-shirt comes off, and the mom gives up, and she's sitting there in her bra. And I know this is only a 10-year-old girl, and there's nothing there. But it, it broke my heart that a child would want to fit in to that kind of culture, but we see it every day. Our fight for our children is theological. Our fight for our, our country is theological. Man needs the full counsel of God. And we lack that in the churches today. What's wrong with our culture? Proverbs 8.36 says a country or a people that hates God loves death. And that is, that is our, that's where we are headed. We are headed to total destruction and death. We see the abortion rates. It's just it's crazy. The amount of people that are aborted every day is, I think, the same number that died in 9-11. Nothing wrong with remembering 9-11. That was a, an important day. But that happens every single day in this country to innocent babies in the womb. And it, it is so destructive. Men that hate God love death. And our culture seems to be, excuse me, hell-bent on this path of destruction. We need to proclaim the gospel to bring dead souls to life. But, you know, we look at that and we say, well, it's the world's fault. We tend to blame, well, it's their fault out there. But if we really examine it, if we examine the church of the last 50, 75, 100 years, I think we would essentially see the problem is us. It's us. For decades, we have had ideas just to bring in numbers, the church is a mile wide and just an inch deep. There is no theology. We must teach our children theology. The people of God, the church, needs to go and make disciples like our text says. Our founding fathers, how did they make law? They looked to the word of God. My daughter, Caroline, goes to Southern Miss. She spent the summer in Charleston. And my wife went out there to visit and talked about all the uh, architecture, beautiful architecture down there, the churches. At one time, there was a law, no building could be higher than the church steeple. And, you know, why? Because they thought that's the most important thing. That's the center of the community. There's nothing more important than the worship of the Almighty. But these, we've allowed these kind of, this kind of idea that God is supreme to leave our churches. How did our fathers make law? They made, they pointed to Jesus. For equity, they pointed to Jesus. Today, we've pushed the Lordship of Christ out of the government houses. We've pushed them out of our public schools. 
At one time, there was a signs coming into Franklinton that said, Jesus is Lord over Franklinton. It was a municipal sign. Some of you probably remember D. James Kennedy, his Coral Ridge Hour. The ACLU sued our small town, and uh, uh, Dr. Kennedy came down to this TV crew and actually videoed our small little town, and of course, we co compromised and took the signs down. But this is the stands we need to make. You know, the city's like, well, we can't spend you know, whatever it would cost to fight this lawsuit with the ACLU. You know, probably our civil magistrates really weren't that enthralled with the idea anyway. Our churches really didn't care. So the signs came down. This is the kind of thing we can, we blame the world, but we really need to be stronger. Not that these signs would have made a difference, but it does point. The steeples in, Saint, in Charleston that's such a visual reminder of the glory and the majesty of God. Neutrality is, does not exist. Secularism is a religion. If our faith has lost its saltiness, we cannot blame the culture. We must blame ourselves. I was watching on Facebook the other day, and there was a local Baptist church that had a youth minister come on, and he said he's holding the camera out here like kids do, my opinion, this is a minister of the word. He's an adult. He needs to carry himself a little differently, but I won't comment on that. Doing a selfie. If you love Jesus, and if you love pizza, come down to XYZ Baptist Church, and we will have a good time. And by the way, we're going to have hammers, and we're going to have these old TVs. If you want to smash a TV set, come on down. To me, that is so shallow. This is not how we create disciples. If we wonder why our children go off to the university and end up living like the world, it's because we have given them no foundation, nothing to build their, 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 their principles on. Pizza's fine, having fun is fine. Smashing TVs, you know, that's probably not the behavior I would want to instill in my children, but they need so much more. The church has been given the means of grace to effect change, and we know what they are. We have got the scriptures. We've got the word. Christ calls himself in John the Logos. He is the living word. We have the sacraments, which are visible, tangible signs of the gospel. We see baptism. We see the Lord's Supper. We can see the gospel. We have prayer. This is something we neglect. And lastly, but most importantly, we have the work of the Holy Spirit. But what do our churches look like? They typically today look like daycare centers. They are basically places to have youth group parties, have a lot of fun, and there's no theology. There's no theology coming from the pulpit. There's no law. There's no foundation on which to build discipleship. And so goes the way. Caroline, another Caroline story. At the university, they've got a grand uh, Baptist church in, uh, in Hattiesburg. It's called Temple Baptist. It's the big mega church in that community. And they have a, a sign-up. You can schedule your baptism. Baptisms are going to be next week. They just have a sign-up sheet. Sign up. And if you do, you get a free T-shirt. I mean, th this is so silly. But there were, last, as of last week, Caroline said there were 40 people registered for this outdoor baptism. And it's just so, so shallow, so sad. You know, probably these kids have already been baptized. I think the average 
rate of baptism. I might be wrong. I want to say it, it's 2.8 baptisms in the Baptist church. Not to pick on my Baptist friends. All my best friends are Baptists. I learned all this stuff from them. So grace abounds. So what are we to do? We're, we aren't called to coax the young folks into faith. We aren't called. We are called to make disciples. Well, the modern evangelicals say, well, modern man doesn't really know God. We can't speak scripture to him. We do have to use techniques. But yes, they do. We are all familiar with Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Man does know God, but he incessantly, consistently pushes him down until he blocks it out. God has revealed himself in nature. He's evident to all. Natural man does know who God is. The problem is spiritual and has to do with repentance. And we are to bring him the word of God. But man wants to push down the knowledge of God. But we must tell them the word preached. There's actual power in the word preached. Man does recognize it. It's written on his heart. We must take it to him. Look at our crop of young people, as I said earlier. We are turning out just tens of thousands of people that have no foundation on which to set up their life, and it, it, it's destructive and very sad. Make a decision, walk an aisle, that, that's not true faith. No, the lost need theological and spiritual education. They need rearing in the church. We had all authority, all encompassing. We also have almighty. If we look at verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Christ is Trinitarian. He declares here the name of God, and he declares that name associated with the power of the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. The 11 are thinking, you're asking us? There's 11 of us. We're a defeated church. We're to go out and establish this kingdom on heaven and earth? And if you remember, I read verse 16, some of them still doubted. They had doubts, and they're saying, Christ, you want us to go out and set up your kingdom on heaven and earth? And they doubt it, but that's why Christ gives them the Trinitarian model here. We, like we had the sacraments, we also have the Trinitarian model that uh, enables them to fulfill the Great Commission. We look at it, we must depend on God to work out, to actually make disciples. As Presbyterians, we all know we don't have the ability to transform a soul. We are called to be obedient and go out, but we don't have the ability to actually convince somebody, effectually call somebody. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Father elects, the Son justifies, and the Holy Spirit effectually calls the sinner. Great error enters the church when we think we can do it on our own. When we begin to think, like Finney thought, that I've got the ability to convince people to become a Christian, that's when error creeps into the church. And that has been, today is the result of a hundred years of that kind of spirituality in the church. Free pizzas? Come on in. Smash the TV? Come on in. They're thinking that will bring the crowds and we will have revival. But no, that is not how it's done. 
the Great Commission spells it out. We are to make, dis make disciples. Our aim is to be faithful and to make disciples of all peoples. Our people deserve true discipleship. Our children deserve true discipleship. And that should be our aim. We must be dependent on God to achieve this end. And I think that's what the Lord was telling us here. He's commanding us to go, and he's telling us, but I will be with you in the name of the Trinity. All things, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. All that he has commanded, all means all. He wants us to make these disciples with the entire canon of Scripture, all 66 books. As I spoke earlier, sacraments are visual displays of the gospel. They are means of reminding us of the gospel. He has also sent us men to visually display that, the apostles, the church. We too must be visual displays of the gospel. To make disciples, you must first be a disciple. We are called to be studied, we are called to be sober-minded, and we are be ready to die for the Lord. If you read uh, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he was not ashamed, he was not afraid to put his life on the line in order to make disciples. All things include all things. Christ said he is the Lagos. He has taught us. The Old Testament? Yes, that's part of his word. All that I have commanded you. He gives us a bunch of directives and he ends it with some grace. If you look at verse 20 again, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, God is telling, he's telling them, and through that, through the church, he's telling us. I am with you. You know, this is an impossible task apart from me. Go, and I will be with you. All this will be accomplished. My kingdom is an eternal kingdom. We are called to go, show them the way, and tell them. And that is our calling. We are to be faithful. We are to be knowledgeable. And we are to, to go and show and tell people, kind of like kindergarten class, show and tell. If we are disciples, God can use us to make disciples. And that is our charge, to be faithful, to be found sober-minded, and prepared to bring the gospel into a fallen world. Amen.